Special Agent Nancy Fisher was surprised to find that the family hadn't contacted her yet, as they were told to once Nicholas arrived in the state. She assumed that the family was just reveling in their reunion with Nicholas. But, nevertheless, she had a job to do. It was her job to get to the bottom of what really happened to Nicholas Barclay. And so, she got in touch with the family herself, and they agreed to meet her at the Center for Missing Children in San Antonio, Texas. The purpose of this meeting, she explained, was to get to the bottom of why Nicholas went missing, what had happened to him on that day in July back in 1994, and to get Nicholas's assistance in locating his abductors. She knew that people could change physically in three years, but when she saw him, she was struck by his shadow of a beard, a dark beard that she doubted Nicholas would have had given that he was fair-skinned and blonde-haired. She saw that the roots of his hair were dark and that his hair had been bleached. More importantly, she noticed, as they spoke, that he had brown eyes instead of blue, like Nicholas was supposed to have. She sat him down in a room, alone, to get his account of what had happened so many years ago in 1994. He appeared to be nervous and uncomfortable the entire time, but Frederick Bourdain had had plenty of time by now to concoct a story and weave his tale to the FBI. My name is Dominique, and I've been fascinated with the concept of freedom since as long as I can remember. I love hearing a good story, but more importantly, I love telling them to people. This is Breakthrough, the podcast where I dig up every detail I can to tell you a story of an epic quest for freedom, how it happened, and the ingenuity, the audacity, and the resilience some will go to to gain their freedom, even when they are the worst among us. Agent Fisher sat him down and began to get his account of what really happened. According to Frederick, Nicholas had been abducted that day he was kidnapped, put in a van, and flown somewhere, and never knew where exactly he was. He had been taken by military men overseas. He was kept in a room with other kids, chloroformed on a regular basis, and was subjected by high-ranking military to sexual abuse. These were American, Mexican, and European military officials, said Bourdain, who broke his hands with a baseball bat. They burned him, broke his fingers, his left foot with a crowbar. The kids were experimented on. They put headphones on him that screamed obscenities. They put a solution in his eyes that ultimately changed the color. Spanish would blare in the background on a speaker and would repeat over and over, you are not you. He was beaten if he spoke English. They would move the kids around and their identities would be changed by altering their appearance. Men would pay handsomely to sexually assault them. One night, he said, the door wasn't shut completely, which led him to another door and into a hallway and eventually up to the street. And hours later, he discovered that he was in Spain, which was October 7th, 1997, 
the night police received the phone call about a young boy wandering the streets. When Frederick was finished with this falsified tale, the agent looked horrified. When he left the interview room, she felt as though she had been shaken to her core, was his demeanor. As he recounted these things to her in the interview room, she kept an eye on his body language, and he was displaying some signs of trauma, but still he acted strange the entire time. These are things that police officials look at, tenor of voice, eye contact, how reserved or active someone looks, what they do with their hands, their facial expressions. To her, he did seem somewhat shaken as he recounted the horrors that he said he'd gone through. And at the time, there was a detachment about the way he spoke. The second thing she noticed was that he was giving her specifics. In her perspective, a normal person doesn't go into detail about torture or the murdering of children, especially if they're meeting somebody for the first time. To Agent Nancy Fisher, in order to get that sort of detail out of a traumatized child, it would take several interviews. And finally, both she and the family could see that he had, in fact, broken his hand, which wasn't ever medically attended to. And he did walk with a slight limp. And he also had other scars on his body. To the agent, she was mostly shocked. At the time, she thought either he had been through a tremendous amount of trauma or if that wasn't the case, then he was absolutely an incredible actor. And she was leaning toward the ladder, but didn't quite know which step to take next. She just couldn't come up with an explanation for it, because what was staring her in the face was that this boy was lying. But when she thought about it further, why would someone pose as a missing child? To what end? And for what purpose? No matter what, something just did not sit right with her. For Frederick, he'd won the game, no one was investigating him, and that should have been enough. But let's stop here for a second. Imagine for a moment that you were able to pull something off like this and get away with it, that you'd fooled the government agencies and a missing boy's family, and you had it all, everything you wanted, a legitimate identity, a fresh start, a clean slate, that was your main goal, right? So, what would you do if you had pulled off your plan? My guess is that you'd probably keep your mouth shut. As the saying goes, to the victor goes the spoils. So, wouldn't it make sense to just keep your nose down and stay out of a spotlight? Not if you're a narcissist, and I largely suspect that Frederick Bourdain was a narcissist. A narcissist usually displays a pattern of self-centeredness. They are arrogant by nature and often lack empathy for others. Narcissists are described as manipulative, conceited, cocky even. They have an unreasonably high sense of self-importance, Moreover, they have an excessive need for admiration. Why might somebody behave in this way? 
Sometimes I wonder if a person can be born a narcissist, but I think that most people are made into narcissists through trauma during the brain's developmental years. This is actually a diagnosable personality disorder. And I have personally met people who are narcissists. And there's something really interesting to me about the nature of a narcissist. Each time I've truly gotten to know a narcissist, it turns out that deep down inside, there's a pain and a suffering there. And that secretly, even though they will never admit it, a narcissist hates himself. This is where the need for adoration comes in. Not from self-love, but from self-hatred. Because a genuine, healthy, true self-love doesn't require outside validation. And so, what Frederick Bourdain would do next would be the beginning of the end of his charade. Because against the advice and request of the FBI, Frederick would go on national television proclaiming to be the lost boy who came home. And there would be someone watching him. Not the FBI, not the Spanish police, but a private investigator who would see something that everyone else had failed to notice. A small, tiny detail that would begin to unravel the facade created by Frederick Bourdain. Charlie Parker, a man in his late 50s, had been a businessman for the past 30 some odd years. He made his career selling lumber and was pretty good at it, but he'd always dreamed of becoming an investigator. In 1994, Charlie Parker met a couple whose daughter had been murdered. The case hadn't been solved yet, and Charlie could not get it out of his mind. He started obsessing over it, and even started looking into the crime in his free time and after work. Through his own research, he discovered that a recently paroled murderer was living next door to the couple's daughter at the time. And after Charlie spied on the man and collected evidence of his own, the man was arrested and convicted of the murder. Soon afterwards, Charlie started an informal group that would research and investigate cold cases. These were comprised of people that he just knew. I think that one was a lawyer and another one was a line cook. After just a few months, the group cracked a cold case by uncovering evidence that helped convict another murderer. Parker got his PI license about a year later and never looked back. Around 1997, Charlie was a heavy-set man with white hair that he slicked back. And he didn't take shenanigans from anybody. You wouldn't want to cross Charlie Parker because he was tough, smart, and would do anything to get the truth. In November 1997, Charlie entered a contract to look into a mysterious case about a boy 
who went missing in San Antonio in 1994, who had turned up less than a month ago. The producer for the tabloid television show, Hard Copy, got in touch with Charlie and asked him to look into the story. It wasn't hard for Charlie to figure out where Nicholas was supposedly staying. And so, Charlie Parker showed up on November 6, 1997, asking to speak with Nicholas Barclay. He'd brought a cameraman and a production member with him. Initially, the family was hesitant, but Frederick Bourdain agreed to speak with Charlie. The crew set up their camera inside of Carrie's trailer, and Charlie stood off to the side. The crew was ready to roll. And so, Frederick began to tell the horrific story of what had happened to Nicholas Barclay. Charlie Parker, as the observant and skeptical man he was, couldn't help but feel like something was off about this whole thing. He watched for Frederick's body language to see if there were any of the classic tells that he could find. But Frederick didn't have any. Not that he didn't have any tells, he just didn't have any body language. None whatsoever. He just sat there and told the tale. He was, as Charlie said, calm as a cucumber, no looking down, no body language, none. Moreover, what was this strange accent he was hearing? Hadn't Nicholas been born and raised in the United States? So why did he sound like that? And the eyes, those dark eyes, something did not feel right to Charlie Parker. Right beside Charlie, there was a picture of Nicholas Barclay from years ago. Charlie had an idea. Carefully slipping the picture into his jacket pocket, Charlie approached the cameraman and whispered, I want you to zoom in on his ears. Get in as close as you can. The cameraman did so. After the crew packed up and headed out, Charlie got a hold of a copy of the video and took it back to his office. He put the photograph of Nicholas into a scanner to get a digital copy of it, then pulled up the video of the interview with Nicholas Barclay. When he got to the part where he'd asked the cameraman to zoom in on the boy's ears, he paused the tape and took a screenshot. Then he pulled up the scanned image of Nicholas and put the two images side by side. Charlie Parker had once read that people's ears, though they change size as a person grows, do not change their shape. This is because ears, like noses, are made of cartilage. Cartilage is a strong yet somewhat flexible tissue that protects our joints and bones. Next time you get a chance, look at the difference between two people's ears. 
In general, the shape between person to person is relatively the same. But if you look closely, no two person's ears are totally identical. And the picture of Nicholas's ears and Frederick's ears were very different. This wasn't exactly a smoking gun in terms of evidence, but it was enough to cause Charlie to strike up an investigation of his own. This could not be Nicholas Barclay. It just couldn't. There were too many discrepancies. The accent, the bleached hair, the brown eyes, the shadow of a dark beard, and the ears. It just didn't make any sense. But Charlie needed it to. He started doing his own research. He contacted several experts in eye color and dialect. First, he contacted several ophthalmologists. Ophthalmologists are doctors who specialize in treatment and diseases of the eye. He inquired as to whether eye color could be changed through the use of chemicals and was repeatedly told no. Then he contacted a professor of language who specialized in dialect at a university in San Antonio, who said that even if a person spent time in a foreign country and had developed some sort of accent, their native voice would come back instantaneously. So, why couldn't this person, purporting to be Nicholas Barclay, speak English without an accent? Charlie's suspicions had already been set, and the more he looked into it, the more ingrained the suspicions became. But now, the questions he had were beginning to change. What started out as a question about whether this was Nicholas was slowly turning into questions about who this person was and what was he doing here. And for the first time, he questioned whether Beverly, Carrie, and Brian may be hiding something else because how could a family not know their own son and brother? Were they complicit in this charade? Charlie Parker was beginning to fear that whomever it was, living with Carrie Gibson, purporting to be a teenager, was actually a spy, or perhaps a terrorist. Charlie anticipated that any day now, he would turn on the news and hear tragedy about a civilian building being blown up, or perhaps someone trying to infiltrate the United States Army base that was nearby. The San Antonio police were of no help. The boy had a passport and had been identified by the United States government. Their hands were effectively tied. They couldn't help Charlie, but he could not keep this information to himself. And so he phoned the FBI and eventually made his way through the phone tree 
to Agent Nancy Fisher. When they spoke, she informed him not to interfere with a federal investigation. But that was not in Charlie's nature. He wanted to get to the bottom of this. Because if his suspicions were correct, and this was an imposter, he'd already defrauded the United States government. And who knows what else he was capable of, let alone if he were a spy or a terrorist, as Charlie suspected, then innocent people could be harmed or killed. He had to do something. I don't necessarily blame Nancy Fisher for reacting the way that she did when Charlie Parker confronted her with this information. She's under oath to keep secrets of the United States of America. So, she can't exactly go talking about her investigation to somebody who isn't also a federal agent. That would be against the law for her. However, I wonder if what Charlie Parker told Nancy Fisher was interesting enough to her for her to begin looking into this case, more so than she already was. Charlie decided to confront Beverly with this information. He was growing more and more confident in his conviction that this was not Nicholas Barclay. It screamed at him, it jumped off the page practically, and he felt that if Beverly truly didn't know that this wasn't Nicholas, then she too could be in danger. She had maintained adamantly that this was Nicholas and that this was her son. Think about it. How does a mother not know her own child? How could a mother overlook so many details, so many discrepancies? Could she really lie to herself like this? To this extent? Was she so desperate to have Nicholas back that she would overlook those details? Would you? I don't think I could. But, at the same time, if you're sitting there in disbelief, then maybe it's for a reason. And so, Charlie Parker, realizing he would have no cooperation with the family, decided to change the focus of his investigation. He decided that instead of trying to figure out who this stranger was, he would go back to Nicholas and would figure out what exactly happened to Nicholas Barclay in the summer of 1994. It was around this point that Frederick Bourdain was enrolled in the local high school. He let a yellow school bus pick him up and headed to class. There aren't exactly that many adults, especially foreign adults, who get the opportunity to come to America and live out a childhood dream. I bet Frederick Bourdain felt pretty special in that moment. But imagine how terrifying that whole idea is. This was a person who was 23 years old, who was around kids ages 14 to 18, pretending to be one of them. If I were a parent and I found out my child went to a school with an imposter who was actually an adult, I'd be outraged. I'd be beside myself. 
I would be furious. Frederick would hang out with other kids from the school and do homework every evening. I can't imagine what was going through his head. And why he was still there. Why was he still doing this? It was around this point, about two months into his stay at Carrie's, that Frederick Bourdain started struggling to stay in character. He was starting to feel claustrophobic in Carrie's home. This was a man who was used to vagrancy, who was used to having complete control over his actions and didn't have to answer to anyone. But now that he'd reverted back to the age of 17, he had rules, people holding him accountable, and was less than thrilled with life in the Texas countryside. He was living with strangers in close proximity, having virtually no privacy to himself in Carrie's small trailer home. Frederick found that his comfort was mostly derived from being out of the house, just walking around alone by himself. Could you imagine how exhausting it might be to have to pretend to be someone else all day, every day, 24-7? Would you do that to gain an identity? For a second, let's take the family out of the equation. And let's say that you were able to steal someone's identity because you needed a new one. Let's say that the person wasn't harmed in the process of you stealing their identity. Let's say you knew that they had passed away. Could you do it? Could you stay in character 24-7? All to gain an identity? Without an identity, what can you do in life? How can you travel? How can you obtain a bank account, get a job, apply for things? How can you go through life being nameless? What would you do if having an identity, any identity at all, depended on faking it for years? Nicholas would turn 18 in about a year, and so Frederick would just have to wait until he was a legal adult to get the hell out of Dodge and start over. But could he make it that long? Could you? He continued to go about his day-to-day -day routine, riding the school bus to school, doing his homework, hanging out with other kids at the park, and taking the bus to visit Beverly. But little did he know that he was being tailed. Every single time he left the house, Charlie Parker would follow him because even though Charlie was now looking into the disappearance of the real Nicholas Barclay, he felt as though he had to keep tabs on this person to ensure he wouldn't do anything, especially since the San Antonio police were not concerned with Nicholas being an imposter. Agent Fisher, on the other hand, was already growing in her own suspicions. She'd warned Charlie Parker not to interfere with a federal investigation but as their own individual investigations went on, the two began to develop a sense of trust, and Charlie would share information with her whenever he could. Agent Fisher came up with a plan. She phoned the family and told them that Nicholas was entitled to see a psychiatrist to help him deal with the trauma he'd experienced. 
the family, and Frederick agreed. And so Agent Nancy Fisher flew with Frederick to Houston to see a psychiatrist. But what Frederick didn't know was that this was not a normal psychiatrist. He was a forensic psychiatrist. A forensic psychiatrist is typically used to determine if a defendant is fit to stand trial. In this situation, the forensic psychiatrist's job was to evaluate all of the details in Nicholas Barclay's case and make an independent assessment about Nicholas's state of mind. Frederick Bourdain sat down with the psychiatrist and began to repeat the horrific tale that he had told to Agent Nancy Fisher and Charlie Parker. Dr. Bruce Perry, who today in 2023 is the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, Texas, and an adjunct professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. He listened intentively, taking notes on Frederick's body language and demeanor. When Frederick was finished describing the horrific tale, including the torture, change of his appearance, and the sexual assault he claimed he endured, Dr. Perry ended their session and started his report. There were two distinct features about the young man that were the focus of Dr. Perry's analysis. The first was one that Agent Nancy Fisher and Charlie Parker had already picked up on. Dr. Perry didn't see any of the same physiological signs in his posture, heart rate, or demeanor as someone who is relating a traumatic experience would show. Police and private investigators pick up on tells in a person's body language during interrogations that assist them in knowing whether the person is lying to them. This is not necessarily concrete evidence, but it is something that police use in the art of interrogation. But Dr. Perry was also looking at this from a psychological perspective. There are certain things that our body does when we are lying and when we discuss and think about trauma. These are involuntary things like heart rate or blood pressure, things we cannot control, things that are difficult to pick up if you're just looking at someone. Dr. Perry had been monitoring these things throughout their discussion, and as the young man related his story, not only was he not acting like he had truly been traumatized, but Dr. Perry didn't see any physiological signs that would indicate that he truly had been through what he was claiming. In other words, it appeared that he was lying. The second and more damning piece of evidence was his accent. Frederick Bourdain spoke English fluently, but did so with a French accent. Having studied psychology, Dr. Perry was well aware that after a certain age, a person's native language, dialect, and accent are essentially solidified in the brain to a point of permanency. Research has shown that this is around the age of seven to 10 years old, and that it becomes much more difficult for a person to learn a new language, let alone speak it without an accent, after this age. Dr. Perry knew that it was possible for a person beyond the age of 10 to develop a slight accent after living in a foreign country for several years. However, 
The degree to which this can happen depends on a lot of different factors, such as the sentence structure of the person's native language, or the system of sounds in the language that they first learned. While it is possible to reduce an accent through the help of speech training, nearly all language experts and psychologists agree that totally eliminating an accent is next to impossible. Dr. Perry, in listening to the young man speak, felt he knew for certain that this could not be an American. His reasoning was that the boy in front of him was supposedly 17, and Nicholas went missing at 14, well past the age of being able to more easily adopt a new language and past the age where English would definitely be solidified in his brain. There would be no way that Nicholas, at the age of 17, would be incapable of speaking English without a French accent. Dr. Perry concluded that this individual could not be Nicholas Barclay, and that he was likely a citizen of France or possibly Spain. He told this information to Agent Fisher immediately after his interview with the boy, and Agent Fisher called Carrie. She told Carrie that there was no way that this could be Nicholas. In spite of her insistence to the contrary, she stressed that there was absolutely no possibility that this was her brother and that she had been living with a stranger, a stranger who could be dangerous. She told Carrie that she did not have to be at the airport when they arrived back in San Antonio and she did not have to take him back into her home. I wonder what the flight back was like for Agent Fisher. I'm sure she'd phoned her office before leaving to tell them about what Dr. Perry had discovered as a result of their interview. However, there was no solid reason upon which to arrest the man. At this point, they couldn't be certain that he had committed a crime yet and they had to be certain in order to arrest him. Police can't just arrest somebody because they think they did the crime. They need some sort of evidence that they can take to a judge to issue a warrant for that person's arrest. They needed to build a better case to definitively prove that this was not Nicholas Barclay. Agent Fisher would have to get the FBI involved because now she was convinced that this was a spy, just as Charlie Parker had suspected. In the meantime, Charlie Parker continued to investigate Nicholas's disappearance. He would try to get every single piece of information that he could. He could not let go. He thought, that the family probably wanted this person to be Nicholas so badly that they were deluding themselves. But it was getting absurd to this point, and Charlie needed to figure out whether there was a possibility that the real Nicholas was still out there. He started out by interviewing the neighbors of the home where Nicholas, his older brother Jason, and his mother Beverly had lived at the time of Nicholas's disappearance. He wanted to get a sense of who Nicholas was and if there was a reason he'd want to run away. 
As a private investigator, Charlie knew that if you're going to find a missing person, you can't just look at the crime scene. You have to get to know the person you're looking for, perhaps by going through their belongings, talking to people who knew them, going through journals and computer files, and trying to figure out their personality. Because you have to know the mind of the person you're looking for if you're going to find them. What might they have done? Once he started interviewing neighbors and people who had known Nicholas, he learned some things that were interesting and frightening. According to them, once Jason moved in, things started going downhill. One neighbor said that the police would come by the house two or three times a month due to fighting between Jason and Nicholas, Nicholas and Beverly, or Beverly and Jason, or perhaps all three. Every time he spoke to someone, they would talk about how much of a troublemaker Nicholas had been, coming home late in the evening and even getting into trouble with the law. Charlie knew that every family has its issues and that family feuds are somewhat normal. But what's not normal is a family fight getting so bad that the police have to be called, let alone several times a month. Moreover, a childhood friend of Nicholas, who referred to him as Nick, said that before Jason moved in, the house was relatively peaceful and that Nicholas and his mother got along just fine. But once Jason arrived, who the friend described as a narcissistic drug addict who contributed next to nothing to the household, everything changed. The friend suspected that Beverly's drug problem got worse after Jason moved in. Charlie was beginning to think that there was much, much more to this story than meets the eye. He started sifting through police files from the time and discovered something that hadn't been brought up before. By the family, by the police, by the FBI, or by the media. As it turned out, several months after Nicholas went missing in July of 1994, Jason, called the police one night in September. He told them that he had seen Nicholas that night attempting to break into the family's garage. According to Jason, he had scared Nicholas off when he attempted to confront him. And when police arrived, they searched the area, but were unable to find any signs of Nicholas. This might seem like a sign that Nicholas was still out there, that he'd been seen after his initial disappearance and may have been closer than they thought. But Charlie Parker, a seasoned investigator who had cracked cold cases before, knew better. What he knew was that this was a classic maneuver, an attempt at trying to establish that Nicholas had been alive in late September when Jason called to report the break-in. And if police thought that Nicholas was still alive and that a family member reported seeing him, 
then perhaps they wouldn't resort to a homicide investigation. Charlie was beginning to add up all of the pieces. He now believed that Nicholas never went missing, nor did he run away. What he had was a volatile household with two adults who were drug addicts, a troubled teen, and an attempt at making it seem like Nicholas was still alive after he had gone missing. It all added up to one thing. Something must have happened to Nicholas Barclay inside of that house. And Charlie was willing to bet his bottom dollar that at least one member of the family knew what had happened. Meanwhile, Agent Nancy Fisher and Frederick Bourdain arrived in San Antonio, Texas. It was Agent Fisher's intention to take the boy back with her to FBI headquarters instead of sending him back to Carrie Gibson and her family. The two deboarded the plane and made their way down the jetway, Agent Fisher being careful not to let on that she knew that this was not Nicholas Barclay. And suddenly, Agent Fisher stopped dead in her tracks and was totally shocked to find that when they got off the airplane, who was standing there waiting for Nicholas but Carrie Gibson? Why? Agent Fisher had told her that she knew this was not her brother. What on earth was happening? When Carrie greeted him, she asked how the trip was and welcomed him with a hug. Agent Fisher was dumbfounded. She snuck away to make a phone call to the United States Attorney's Office to figure out what on earth she was supposed to do next. Without a warrant for his arrest, without any solid proof that he had committed a crime, she couldn't do anything. The office told her to let him return to the family. And so, Frederick Bourdain returned to live with Carrie. But was she really in this much denial? How could she accept this man back into her house after an FBI agent told her it was impossible that he was Nicholas? Or was there more going on here? And was Carrie hiding something? If you're curious, then join me next time as we unravel the taking of Nicholas Barclay.